Well, it's quite a difficult. <laughs> right. Uh, well, it's quite a. The the world we're at now exploring is the. How do we enter into a authentic spiritual experience articulated by the system of being called Torah? And the system has been around for a very long time. And throughout generations, people have learned to... Um, whilst moving with the times retain the consistent insights of the and that you we use the word truth but truth often has a different connotation to the word that i would like to use which is more reality and the point that we've discussed multiple times is that reality has a series of different um layers to it and the, the most external layer of reality is always the reality that's processed through our senses. It's the most accessible. It's the one that we don't have to be trained to to perceive because it's simply, well, unless we are in some way, uh, you know, have some kind of malfunction in our sensory processing. But otherwise, it's just part and, par- part and parcel of being human is we hear, we see, we, we, we smell, and therefore... We have a basic logical mechanism which can process our sensory experiences. Beneath that, there's a there's another dimension which not everyone has access to, and it's much more linked into self development as opposed to let's say motor development, which is the emotional world. The emotional world is much more subtle; it's far less visible. It requires taking um, a processing mechanism which is different from the from the logical processing mechanism uh people can be extremely extremely bright and they can be completely emotionally um unintelligent uh you know, people who who are on the autistic spectrum often express this there's, there's there's a great a great um a great woman called temple grandin probably many of you have heard of her judging by her faces <laughs> none of you have. and she she's famous because she's very articulate about autism. She's written a book about it. She's also extremely successful. Her her job has to she does a lot of work with, with designing animal facilities. And the reason why she's so brilliant at designing animal facilities is that her autism allows her to have a experiential understanding of how animals work. So in a cow dip she recognizes that before the car enters into this submersive experience of being in water, the car is scared. So it will, it will like, it will, it will shift its feet. And therefore she designs a very solid entrance so that cars would end up falling and drowning. And she was able to pick that up because she actually, she walked through the car dip and she experienced it as the animal would. And she's actually des- designed a shkita process where the animal feels no fear, feel, feels no fear, doesn't panic, doesn't struggle, because the animals, it's like this, it's, it's a whole machine, which is quite complex, but it's, it's amazing. So she's an extremely, extremely successful woman, but she's autistic, and she's had a really, really tough life. There's actually a movie they've just made about her, and I think it may even be called Temple Grandin, 
um, where they dramatize her growing up as an adolescent and how she couldn't really understand social clues. She doesn't, she doesn't get it. So she's an extremely brilliant woman and has no social, has no emotional intelligence. So a person doesn't have to get the... The, the inter- emotional intelligence is actually a different kind of inter- intelligence to intellectual intelligence. You know, people who are intellectually brilliant and emotionally stupid. They would look something like a person who's just come up with a whole new way of um, designing a um, a building which is so incredibly engineered that the um, I've actually seen a building like this that it's it's completely self sufficient. That it's the plants supply the oxygen which cool the air instead of air conditioners. So it's like it's it's an environment. They create an environment. You, you get brilliant understanding of the biology and the design and the engineering and they're putting it all together and creating like a um a self sufficient environment. I think there's actually quite a few of these places in Israel where they're completely green and they, they use only real natural energies. You can be brilliant. And then someone comes in they and they say hello and you don't notice them. Which is emotionally stupid because they're looking for recognition, they're looking to be acknowledged, they're looking to for you to gauge expression on their face. Do they need empathy? Do they need encouragement? Do they need a warm hello? But you just are kind of figuring out this last nuance of how you're going to design your building and you're a brilliant person, but it doesn't necessarily carry through to the emotional realm and you can have the opposite as well. You can have people who emotionally are brilliant and intellectually are very challenged. They can't they can't kind of get these complex um abstract theories of calculus and the like, but they'll know exactly they'll walk into a room and they'll be able to position everyone according to the emotional state. I have a relative who when she walks into or walks into the room People get caught off guard because she'll walk. She'll walk into a room and she'll 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 like kind of go over to a person and say, "I'm really sorry." The person, what, "What are you talking about?" So I can see that you're like really having a tough time. And say, well, how did you know? <laughs> you know. So so emotional intelligence is a different kind of intelligence, but it's it's, it's also a level of reality. It's, it's a re- it's a reality that we all experience emotions in a certain way, and the, the, a lot of the stuff that relationships which is the basic defining component of what humanity is all about, are defined by emotional intelligence. But it's much harder to grasp, and you complete, you can completely miss it. So therefore, it's not surprising that the most refined and sophisticated level of reality, which is the spiritual world, can be easily missed. You can have people who have got high spiritual intelligence. Like, I meet students who have no background in, 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 in Judaism or any other spiritual practice, but when you start to speak to them about the spiritual world, they just get it. Because they've got a, like some people are emotionally talented, some people are intellectually talented, some people are spiritually talented, they have a high spiritual intelligence. And you have people who've got very low spiritual intelligence, and they find it very difficult to grasp anything which is abstract and not concrete, and certainly something which is um, of a higher realm and transcendent. They kind of say, well, what do you mean? Who says, who says it exists? Very much like if you spoke to an autistic person, they'll say, what do you mean they were upset with me? They wouldn't be able to have, they wouldn't have the faculty to process it. So the spiritual universe is the most subtle of, let's say, the three dimensions that we've discussed until now. 
And the point of Torah is to allow us a access into that world. But because it's so subtle and so unfamiliar, it requires enormous amounts of guidance to even start to pick up some of the energies that are that, that are present. So I'll give you an example. In 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 the passage of time, in the passage of time, the way that we see that the physical world and the spiritual world sync is that the day and night aren't just random reflections of the earth's capacity to rotate on its axis. Sorry, sorry. Am I am I am I being a little bit too am I putting too many big words into too many complex concepts like is this boring? No. How'd you know? <laughs> <laughs> Can someone prove to me that this is not boring? I fall asleep. I'm still listening. Okay. Bad? Anyone else like something like a little bit more solid than that? <laughs> I'm not falling asleep and I'm still listening. It's okay. It's okay. It's, I mean, maybe not falling asleep because my droning voice is keeping you awake. <laughs> Think about it like this. The world rotates on its axis, the earth. And therefore you have something called night and day. When you're looking at from the sensory world, so what you're going to see, you're going to see, well, the world's rotating on its axis. It's positioned this way in regard to the sun. So when this side of the world turns towards the sun, it's going to be day. And when it turns away, it's going to be night. End of story. Seen through the empirical world of observation. When you look at the rotation of the earth upon its axis through the world of emotions, you're going to start to say things like, oh my gosh, I was at that sunset and something just touched me. The way that the horizon started to go from light orange to this deep crimson was captivating. I felt stirring inside of me. And then the night progressed until it became this velvety black punctuated with these shining stars that was oh, that's emotional I'm seeing the same universe but I'm using a different lens to see it through you getting this? are you all getting this? I can see it through the spiritual world spiritual world was I see darkness fall darkness means I can't plot my path ahead so darkness would be a time of trust of recognizing that the process of development, because the Jewish day begins at night and then goes to the day, therefore, in our perception of night, we recognize that night is the beginning of a process in which inevitably there is not enough light for me to navigate, and it's plunged, I'm plunged into darkness, and that darkness continues and continues, it hits a height, and then all of a sudden I see the first inklings of the dawn light, and the day slowly, slowly enters into my experience until it becomes broad daylight. And then I'll understand that the nature of the rotation of the earth reflects a spiritual reality that the process of progression is darkness and then light. I've always been with confusion doubt, a lack of understanding, striving to get the answers to so many questions. And as I progress into that process, slowly but surely, as the process goes on, the light starts to begin to appear on the eastern horizon. And therefore, that's a spiritual way of looking at the day and night. And another thing about the spiritual day and night is as this rhythm of day-night, day-night, which is really 
the rhythm of my life, day, night, day, sorry, night, day, night, day, night, day. Vayere, vayiboike is the rhythm of my life. My life goes darkness, light, and then darkness again. Light, darkness, and then light, and then darkness. That rhythm of my life, I start to recognize that there's a unified force that's actually pulling these pieces together and that the master of darkness is the master of light and it's a singular focus process and the actual darkness and the doubt and the, the lost sense that I experience is that which provides the light that comes later on, which then that light actually leads into more darkness, which then leads into light again. And I'm starting to recognize that this process is actually a unified whole. And then I start to understand, how do I capture the unity of that transition? And then I think, I got it! At that point in time when the transition is profound, I'm going to meditate on the unity. And then, boom! Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. A prayer that you say twice a day, which is a declaration of an acknowledgement that the spiritual force that guides the universe is a singular force. And then I think, oh my gosh, that's the positioning that the Torah has helped me to lock into this energy. That's called navigational skills. So what is the Torah providing us with? Yosef It's providing with me, I'm in a new city, it's called the city of spirituality. I have no idea which way to turn. Thankfully, I have a phone that has reception and I have a Google Maps app that can tell me if I want to go to that point, I should take these roads. I have no idea where I'm going. I blindly follow the instructions. At first, as I become more familiar with the whereabouts of the city, I think, ooh, I can get this. And as I become familiar with the entire geography, I can remove the GPS positioning, uh, the the way the Google Maps, and I can self-navigate. I can sense for myself. Our experience of the spiritual world is that the Torah is the, the it is the ways, it's the GPS, it's the Google Maps, which navigates us in an unfamiliar environment until we get the hang of what the highways and byways look like, and then we should be self-navigational. Which means we'll, we'll ensure it. Oh, okay, I have to turn right over here. Oh, yes, of course. Now, that's a very lofty level to reach. And it's obviously years, years, decades, and maybe even generations of practice. But that's that's where we're trying to go. So that's, that, I, I just want to, in terms of concept, that's a concept of Torah. The concept of Torah is not ritualistic. It's not theological. It's deeply experiencing the ultimate reality of the world, which is the spiritual energy which underlies all. Because really, it's not only that there are these three dimensions, but really that that deepest dimension uses the other two to manifest itself. So now let's look at the rotation of the world again. If I'm understanding that the rotation of the world is to coach me in the experience of the nature of how life progresses, which is inevitably darkness, then light, then darkness again. So then it's not that, oh wow, the world rotates on the axis, which creates a possibility of darkness and light. Woo, how about we use it for this idea? But rather, because the idea of darkness and light is the nature of how spiritual development occurs, that is why the earth retakes on its axis. 
It's that the spiritual concept provided the design plan for the world to function in the way it does. Not, not, it's not that, oh, I have parents, how should I relate to them? Well, one relating to them is buying a rebellion and like saying, oh, my dad, come on, you're from a different generation, give my back. The other way could be respect. <laughs> Which way do I choose? <laughs> Which way do I choose? So normal way of thinking would be, well, you've got parents, that's a given. So, well, you could relate to them in an uh, ungrateful Disrespectful way or respectful. You know what? Let's be ethical. Let's do it respectfully. The way I'm positioning it now with the term being a spirituality is that there's a need inside of a person to process his primary caregivers and those that brought him into his world, namely his parents, in a way that's healthy, in a way that's helpful. And therefore, since there's a spiritual need for that, the way that people were designed was to be born from parents. So they could then, and born from parents who are amazingly messed up. I'm not speaking <laughs> from a position as a child, I'm speaking from my position as a parent. <laughs> what I've done to my poor, 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 poor children is like, you know, I should ask them forgiveness every day. Not because I'm a bad guy. I am a bad guy, but that's not the reason why I messed up with my kids. It's because you can only be good at something when you practice. And you, when you're a first-time parent, you haven't any practice. So, are you a firstborn yourself? Are you the firstborn? Kind, Near the top? Kind of. Yeah. I am the oldest. Oh, you are the oldest. Okay, you're the oldest. So that means they got to make all the mistakes on you. Who else is the oldest? <laughs> right? So, your parents, you were their practice run. <laughs> right, you're their practice run. Now, the sad thing is, if you only have one kid, you really don't know how you could have upped your game. <laughs> one of the reasons why some people have so many kids, it's just like it's getting good. By the time you're like 10, 12, you've really kind of mastered it. You know, but that case, so there's a price you pay, the first 11. But you know what I'm saying? That 12 kids is going to be sorted. <laughs> but it's like everything in life, you've got to practice. So, so isn't it an incredible way of designing the world that the person put into the position of being the most profound influence of your life have no qualifications to do so. So that's a really difficult dynamic to deal with. So how do you deal with it? So the choice is, no, that's the way it's meant to be. Because those mistakes that they make are the mistakes which are your formative developmental reality, which is going to define the nature of your struggles, challenges, talents, and powers in life. And therefore, you have to develop a way of recognizing and relating to the fact that we are not created perfect. We are created in a situation where things are fundamentally wrong because our goal is to make things right. And if we'd be born in a way when things are right, we'd have nothing to do. So in order for me to inculcate that value, I need to have a relationship where the people that brought me to the world are going to be imperfect in what they do for me, which is going to create inside of me a whole range of challenges which I'm going to need to overcome. And it's going to allow me to not delve into a victim mentality that I put the fingers and I point at them and I say, Mom, Dad, you messed me up. Because that would be the inherent opposite of owning my life and my challenges. So because challenges of our own messed up beings need to be engaged in, therefore the way that Hashem decided to build the world was through 
parents who are not suited for the job giving birth to children that they're going to give an insufficient education to. So that the child can accept the responsibility of defining and facing their own challenges and how is it manifest by the fact that they respect and don't disrespect their parents. Which means they acknowledge that the limited faculties that they've been bestowed, sometimes terrible ones, are all okay. Because that's their pu- pu- mission and purpose. That never ends. And that never ends. But theoretically, we could have been born from eggs. Or just grown, grown from seeds. <laughs> imagine, you could have just, no, imagine, you shine, someone's just like, you know, first time you hear your consciousness, you just look around you and it's just like, the ground. And you've got no one to blame. <laughs> so it's not that because they are parents, therefore we should think away of an ethical response to them, but because we need to relate to our primary people about the world in this way in order to acknowledge our purpose, that's why our parents were created. So it's not like there's a mitzvah to honor your parents because they're parents, but because there's not that because you have parents, therefore you have a mitzvah to honor them, but rather because you have a mitzvah to honor them, which implies all these things, that's why you're born with parents. The cause and effect is flipped. So it actually means that the, that the physical world is a vehicle of expression for the spiritual ideals that we so hold of, and that the Torah hones in to maximize and to express how that should all work in its ideal form. Or did I lose you with that last flurry of sentences, meaning that the Torah allows me to understand that this dynamic between me and my parents is the way it should be and uh, uh, let me find better words to express this um it's, it's like it's, it's such a radical paradigm shift that it changes everything. So, for example, I'll I see if I can get back and find better words to express it. There are poor, poor people in the world. So you can understand the notion of charity in one of two ways. Or they're poor people. That's a problem. Charity is a solution. Or you can understand they're poor people. That's a solution. Stinginess is a problem. Charity allows the poor people to reach the way that they... That's why they're there, as it were. In other words, the financial inequality is to provide a platform for the expression of kindness to others, even though they don't can't demand it from you. So it's not because there are poor people there's charity, but because there's a need for charity, that's why they're poor people. All the causes and effects are flipped. You get me? Yes, Eitan. Is it like there's like a spiritual world? There's a need to give charity. Yes. So therefore, there had to have been poor people. Right. And that's why Turnus Rufus, I believe, came to Rabbi Akiva and said to him, "Why, if God is in charge of the world's financial balances, why does He just feed all the poor people?" Which is like such a legitimate claim. In other words, if poor people is a problem, so then go to the kindest, best, most benevolent being in the world and say. You know, master of the universe, you have all the cash in the world. Why don't you just dish it out to the people that need it? So obviously it depends on if poor people is a necessary component of our experience of reality. And therefore everything in reality, sickness, health, poverty, riches, pleasure, pain, all become these 
moving parts in an expression of a higher spiritual realm. And what the Torah allows us to do is to access the reality of our experience in this world and not to be beguiled into thinking that the surface experience is what it's all really about. Really about. And it totally transforms our perception of cause and effect. And here we are. I think it's huge. So I'll let that sink in. Maybe we'll revisit it at another stage because it is quite big. And I thought maybe now we're just like, I don't know, is anyone got beers? No scotch? No scotch. <laughs> it's not, I know, it's a big idea, big idea. So um, maybe we'll stop there. <laughs>